0: Welcome to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross
1: in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. And today on the show, we're looking back at the biggest stories that made news in Florida this year. Let's start by going back to June of last year. That's when Champlain Towers South, the 12-story beachfront condominium in the Miami suburb of Surfside, partially collapsed and led to the deaths of 98 people. In the wake of the disaster, policies were changed across the state to ensure condos undergo strict inspections. Policies changed in Miami, however, this has led the city to rush and demolish buildings. The move is pushing people out of their homes and shrinking the options of affordable housing. WLRN's Danny Rivero talks about those struggling under the policy changes. The worst place
2: to find yourself on a Friday in Miami is at City Hall. Every week at 9am, a a packed crowd gathers before the unsafe structures panel to hear ultimatums about their properties. Ultimatums like this one.
3: If... She doesn't do anything, and she breaches our order. In other words, she ignores it. The property can be demolished.
2: After the Surfside condo collapse that left 98 people dead last year, the city of Miami changed its policy about how to handle unsafe buildings. Now, the city moves more quickly to condemn and demolish buildings. Most of these ordered demolitions are for residential properties, and especially low-income properties, Many are not at risk of falling down, or it's impossible to find information about why they're considered unsafe. It's something that's forcing people out of their homes and shrinking the pool of affordable housing options.
4: I'm a single person, super young, um, alone, but, and I'm struggling.
2: Daniela Clavijo is 23, and she says she moved four times this year trying to find something affordable. And when she finally signed a one-year lease for an apartment in Little Havana, her anxieties settled down.
4: Well, the seasoned living room—it's pretty small. That's the TV I don't even use. Someone gave it to When I found this place, it was—it was like I was living again, like breathing and sleeping again.
2: But there was a problem. Months before she moved in, records show that the city declared the three-story building unsafe. The 18-unit building was built in 1932, and it hasn't done its 50-year recertification. When an engineer evaluates the building and declares it safe, it's a legal requirement. The city ordered the building repaired, or else it'll be demolished. And so now, the landlord's ordering everyone to evacuate the building by the end of the year.
4: There's... Bunch of women here, they're pregnant, they have kids, little kids, and they just told me, what are we going to be doing? I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't know what to do either. We are staying here because we have nowhere to go in this crazy market, but we also live with anxiety because we don't know how bad the structure is. The city keeps saying that it's an unsafe structure, but you call them and they don't give you any response to anything if if you're lucky enough to get a hold of them.
2: For Clavijo, it feels like everything, even the city government, is aligned against low-income residents. She pointed out when Mayor Francis Suarez said, "Find a job that
4: pays better." Oh, they need to find another job. Then that's the solution. Um, it made me feel like, like I'm not doing enough when it's just to pay the bare minimum things, It's human necessities. I'm not like traveling or, you know, it's just. School and rent and everything. It's just disrespectful how nobody has some sort of empathy for hardworking people. We don't want anything for free, but it's just a very unfair market and nobody cares. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Since this interview, Clavijo has sold her things, packed up her bags and left. She's now living on a friend's couch and trying to figure out her next move. Some buildings in the city of Miami's crosshairs haven't had their recertifications. And it's understandable the city would be concerned about that in the aftermath of the Surfside collapse. But a lot of buildings being condemned by the city and slated for demolition are not necessarily at risk of falling down. For example, a restaurant in Little Havana was demolished on orders by the city. A historic hotel in the neighborhood and a 20-unit low-income building in Little Havana have been ordered to be torn down. All of them already had their recertifications. In one case, the property owner even put in a new roof last year.
5: Many people have likened it to like being back in Cuba. Many of them got their properties taken away and their businesses taken away. And now they're fearing for the same thing here in the city of Miami. Like the irony.
2: Denise Galvez Turros is a business owner, conservative activist, and member of the Historic and Environmental Preservation Board in the city of Miami. She says she's alarmed at how many buildings are being demolished.
5: Unsafe structures supposed to be like, oh, there's something that's an imminent danger, right? That an imminent danger to the public. And it's up to the discretion of the inspector and the and the unsafe structures director who thanks to Surfside, now scares everybody and gaslights everybody into thinking that it means the building is going to collapse. And so that's how they've been getting away with it. It's by design. It's by direction of our commissioners, our building department heads, and our city manager, who doesn't care about this issue at all.
2: A representative for the city of Miami told WLRN that the city adopted its new, more aggressive demolition policy in March of this year. But the city argues that the policy change was not made because of the Surfside condo collapse. The city also says demolitions this year are not historically high, although that doesn't account for all the landlords fighting the city in court to stop buildings from getting torn down. The number of those lawsuits exploded after the policy change. The city's ordering demolitions even when property owners have applied for permits to do work on their buildings, when they've already got the permits, and when they're already doing the work. Some county judges have sided with landlords, saying the city has no business destroying inhabitable buildings during a declared affordable housing emergency. Narcisa Torres lives in a 48-unit building right in the shadows of the Marlins Stadium. The building did its recertification in 2016, and even got one again this year when they didn't have to. But still, The city of Miami wants to tear it down. One of the reasons? Broken windows. The property owners sued in October to block the impending demolition. All the residents have their rent subsidized by the government through Section 8. And Torres doesn't believe a demolition will actually happen. Because, she says, this is a democratic country. Unlike Cuba, where she was born. According to data from the city of Miami, 30 residential properties have been demolished on city orders this year. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami, and this is WLRN News.
0: Local political candidates made significant efforts this year to get Black voters to the polls in Leon County's midterm election. But the turnout in predominantly black precincts was low, which some say is a trend. As WFSU's Margie Menzel
5: reports, one group is admitting failure and forging ahead. As Election Day loomed, U.S. Congressman Al Lawson convened elected officials and church leaders for Souls to the Poll's push on Tallahassee's south side. Mayor John Daly blanketed the area with billboards and sign waivers. But the turnout was disheartening, said City Commissioner Curtis Richardson on election night.
6: And at my own precinct where at 2.30 this afternoon only 200 people had voted. Uh, and so, and I know that there has been extensive outreach in the African-American community. Uh, uh, telephone calls, flyers, uh, people polling in the, actually going through the community, knocking on doors.
5: Bethel AME Church on Orange Avenue, Richardson's precinct, ended up with 716 votes, counting early voting and mail-ins. That's also where Lawson, who lost his bid for re-election, spoke. He told community leaders that without an African-American representing them in Congress, their issues would get short shrift. It was much the same throughout South City. While in Northeast Tallahassee, the predominantly white precincts were drawing voters by the thousands. Although his mayoral candidate won, Richardson wasn't happy with the black turnout.
6: It just seems like it's been very difficult to g- generate interest uh, in this midterm election when there are so many issues on the ballot that negatively impact African-American community.
5: Democratic consultant Steve Shale says the party did so badly statewide it's hard to single out one constituency.
6: But I think the point
7: that Curtis makes is fair which is that there are um, by and large the party does not do a good enough job of
8: of year-round outreach to constituencies that are important and You know, that's just one of many things that have to change for us to
5: be competitive in Florida going forward. Reverend R.B. Holmes, pastor of Bethel Missionary Baptist Church, said the moderate and progressive wings of the Democratic Party had undermined each other.
6: I think that they spent so much time in a negative uh, campaign and called themselves progressive, and they took eyes off the prize. And instead of being enthusiastic, trying to encourage people to vote. They would encourage folk to, to vote against their own party.
5: Neighborhood activist Telethia Edwards said the candidates hadn't done enough for black communities between elections.
9: Our material conditions aren't changing very much, and we're seeing a lot of lean on the African-American communities for our vote, but in turn, once that election is over and the polls are closed, we need to see a lot more action um, in those areas.
5: Bruce Strobel is the founder and chair of Tallahassee Alert, which stands for African-American Local Election Review Team. The group researched the local candidates in this election cycle and endorsed those backed by 70% of their participants. Strobel says the group knew going in that the black vote would be, quote, incredibly important.
8: We have been looking at what was going on in the previous elections, and we saw particularly that as white voters locally are divided, uh, the black vote becomes a swing vote within that community. and Ultimately, when people feel entitled to the black vote, like they don't think that there's any work they have to do for it, there's less political capital in the black community. So we wanted to uh, start to push that idea that you're gonna have to, what is going to be done for these black communities um, so that you earn that vote.
5: Strobel says social trust is at an all-time low. People
8: just don't have much faith In political collective efficacy, they don't believe that anyone elected is going to do anything. I went out tirelessly talking to young people, talking to students like, what is it going to take to get you out here to vote? And they're like, the system is corrupt and there's nothing that we could do. And I, I understand them, but I still feel we can't put down the vote.
5: The turnout at Florida A&M University, an historically black institution, was 604 votes. Florida State University, a predominantly white institution, had 429 votes and more than three times the enrollment. Although Leon County's active Democratic voters outnumber Republicans roughly two to one, the GOP turnout was 69 percent, while the Democrats managed 58 percent.
8: You see, the Republican turnout was significantly higher, right? Um, But we're going to see declines in our turnout. That's what I'm projecting based off how it looks as this trend continues. There are ways that in certain areas we saw people are getting around this, uh, particularly in Georgia with Stacey Abrams. They were fighting and even though she was unsuccessful, she did show us some ways to break through. And we know that exciting candidates do mobilize the black community as well.
5: Strobel says the role of Tallahassee Alert is to hold candidates accountable for their entire political lives, not just their commercials and flyers as election day nears.
8: As we look at just being better organized and more politically mature, these are things we want to guard ourselves against and we to put more critical thinking into our voting process. We're not just voting because someone has shown up right now during a lecture time and said, look, I'm here for you. I'm doing these things for you. We well, want to track your entire record and keep that before the community.
5: Strobel says those who feel disenfranchised cannot give up, that it takes education and understanding to navigate the political system. For now, he says, the black vote has enough power to be sought after, but not enough to be earned. He intends to change that. For WFSU News, I'm Margie Menzel.
1: Hillsborough County offers free health care to thousands of residents with low incomes who can't access Medicaid or other insurance, but it could be helping a lot more people. Health News Florida's Stephanie Colombini explores the barriers some residents face signing up and how county workers are trying to address them.
10: Many of the people roaming through the community resource fair Hillsborough County recently hosted in Ruskin came for the free food and entertainment, but Cassandra Blaylock hoped some would leave one step closer to accessing health care.
11: How are you? Do you have health
10: insurance? The education and outreach manager for the county's health care services department engaged with attendees as they passed by her table. She talked to them about the Hillsborough County Health Care Plan. It helps eligible residents with low incomes access primary and specialty care from local hospitals and health centers.
9: It's free, it's at no cost, they have no co-pays, they have no premiums, no deductibles, Um, and we're trying to get people healthy, so this is how we're trying to basically invest into the community.
10: The plan is serving over 13,000 residents, mostly working-age adults who don't have employer-based insurance and can't qualify for Florida's Medicaid program. But Philip Conti, who oversees the plan, says they have the money to cover thousands more. The county even raised the income limit this year to 175 percent of the federal poverty level, which is about $1,900 a month for a single person. But not enough people are taking advantage.
1: No one in this county should go without health care. If they do need health care, they can come to us and we'll, we'll help them through it.
10: But a lot of people don't even know the plan exists. It's been around since the early 90s, but Hillsborough's population has grown dramatically since then, with many people moving to the area from out of state. Conti also suspects some are wary of government programs. When Tampa resident Ana Yanis heard of the county-run program, she assumed bureaucratic red tape would drag out the sign-up process, but was desperate so gave it a shot. Within a week, She and her late husband got the care they needed, and she's been a satisfied member for three years.
9: I try to spread the word every time I can.
10: Yana says she sometimes encounters friends and family who are struggling financially, but are overwhelmed by the idea of applying. Signing up for health care involves research, pulling documents together, and navigating online application portals or phone lines. Yana says that requires time and energy some people don't feel they have.
9: So I think they're just more focused on keeping a roof over their shoulders right now than worrying about medical insurance. Does that make sense?
10: County staff say they get that. And that's why Philip Conti says in the last couple years, his team has shifted its strategy. Instead of relying on people to find out about the plan through referrals from health providers or online searches, they're also going out into the community to recruit members. And they're doing more to help applicants overcome digital barriers like needing a computer or tech savvy.
1: At the end of the day, I think, I think we have to get a little bit more targeted to uh, the communities. We have to get a little bit deeper into the communities where we think people would benefit from this. We have to do things to gain uh, their trust.
10: Back at the community center in Ruskin, Cassandra Blaylock explained she uses zip code data to identify areas in need and plans her outreach around that. She'll visit churches, neighborhood meetings, job fairs, and other events, and partners with community groups who already have relationships with residents. Since there's no specific enrollment period, she'll often bring a tablet to get people registered on the spot.
9: And I just try to show them in the field that it's simple. It's simple, it goes step by step, and and once
12: they get the hang of it, they're pretty
10: good. One woman she spoke with at the fair named Linda Stewart already had health insurance, but she was interested in the plan for her son who's in his 20s and who Stewart says hasn't felt the urgency to seek out coverage.
11: And that's why I'm kind of, as mommy, trying to motivate him. Coming here and getting this information will give me a better point to jump off of to help him.
10: And that's the kind of interaction county workers hope will boost enrollment numbers for the plan and improve overall health in the community. For Health News Florida, I'm Stephanie Columbini.
1: This story completes a two-part series Stephanie produced on the health plan for a national collaborative called The Holdouts. It's run by Public Health Watch and focuses on the 11 states in the U.S. that haven't expanded Medicaid. You can hear both stories on WUSFnews.org.
0: And up next, a study finds more damage done to fish in the Gulf of Mexico from the BP oil spill and a look at the divided history of Tallahassee and Leon County. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville.
1: And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. With the risk from oil spills coupled with warming waters caused by climate change, the scientists worried about one of the nation's most bountiful fishing grounds. New research into the lasting effects of oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico found that even low levels of oil can make one of the ocean's most popular fish more likely to die within a week of exposure. WLRN's Jenny Stiletovich reports. <laughs> In 2019,
13: a team of researchers from the University of Miami Rosensteel School took a three week summer fishing trip to the northern Gulf of Mexico.
0: Which sounds pretty
13: fun.
11: Good shot, shot, Martin! Nice shot! Woo!
13: Woo! Fishing day after day, eating fresh wahoo for breakfast. But the goal of the trip was actually very serious. The scientists wanted to find out if oil spills in the Gulf, like the 2010 BP Deepwater Horizon explosion, can cause lasting damage for fish, in particular on mahi-mahi, or dolphin fish, one of the Gulf's most important fish both economically and ecologically.
3: We know that oil impacts these systems. What we don't know is how much that matters to the wild populations.
13: Martin Grossell is a U.M. ichthyologist whose lab conducted the research.
3: And with environmental disasters like this, what we ultimately care about is ecosystem function. We want to know if oyster harvesting, for example, is going to be sustainable. We want to know if the marine mammals are going to be okay for the decades to come after this bill.
13: BP's Macondo well, named for the cursed town in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's One Hundred Years of Solitude, dumped more than 3 million barrels of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. The catastrophic spill fouled water for miles, killing whales, turtles, seabirds, and oysters. Scientists believe the oil killed between 2 and 5 trillion fish. Grassell's been investigating the damage for the last decade. He's already found that young lab bred mahi exposed to non-lethal levels of oil can have their hearts, vision, and hearing damaged.
3: It's very rare that we have the opportunity to then test whether those extrapolations really does matter or really does predict what's going on in the wild.
13: It's rare because ocean research can be complicated with all the variables
3: at play. The time of year matters. Depth matters. The presence of other stressors will matter.
13: And expensive.
3: I'd rather not disclose exactly how much this particular experiment costs, but it, it, it's one of the more, what well, is the most expensive experiment I've ever done.
13: The money for this project came from the $17 billion BP settlement deal. For the experiment, Grosell's team planned on catching a bunch of wild mahi and putting them in tanks on a boat for 12 hours. Half would go in oil contaminated water that mimicked the spill, the other half would go in untainted water then they'd all be tagged with satellite trackers to record their location, speed, depth and temperature and let go. Sounds easy, right?
3: But it it is not, it is not.
13: That's partly because UM's 96 foot long research vessel was not built to catch one of the fastest fish in the ocean.
3: Slow and hard to maneuver, even with the best of captains, and we had one of those.
13: So the plan was for Grosselle to captain a fishing boat sailing alongside the research vessel, find the mahi, then radio back his location. They'd use the fishing boat to catch the fish, then transfer them to the research vessel, except.
3: You cannot transfer these fish out of the water. That's impossible.
13: Right, mahi are real wimps when you take them out of the water.
3: That is their home court. And the minute you remove them from there, that's challenging.
13: So how do you catch a fish if you can't take it out of the water? You don't. Instead, once somebody hooked the mahi on the fishing boat, they'd switch the line to a rod on the research vessel. To do that, they'd secure the line to a tennis ball, toss the tennis ball to the fishing boat, and switch the part of the line attached to the hooked mahi, called the leader. Then they'd use a sling to load the fish into a tank on the research vessel.
3: That could be done in a matter of five minutes.
13: That's if everything worked as planned.
3: And then there are all the cases where, you know, you bring the fish to the boat, you think you're ready, you grab the leader. Yeah, that's, that should be good. You're not paying attention, there's no jerks on the leader, you break the leader. Or the people on the research vessel trying to hit the sports fishing vessel with the tennis ball missing. Oh, At a critical moment, lines getting tangled. Uh, so we got very good at it at the end, um, but but it was a very steep learning curve.
13: When they started seeing the monitoring results, it confirmed their worst fears. The tracker showed mahi exposed to oil were just half as likely to survive within a week of their release compared to those not exposed to oil. Most mahi are killed by other bigger fish eating them. And remember the lab fish had their vision and hearing impaired. So imagine trying to escape say a marlin or a sailfish or a shark if you're blind and deaf. The mahi exposed to oil also stopped spawning. One of the reasons mahi are such a great food source is because they spawn all the time. Females in the wild release eggs every couple of weeks. Males release sperm even more frequently. But for the 37 days the mahi were monitored, the ones exposed to oil didn't spawn once.
9: It's important to remind people what happened and that it hasn't gone away.
13: Catherine Uden is the South Florida representative for Oceana.
9: It just goes to show that there are so many long lasting effects from fish to sea turtles to dolphins.
13: It's why Oceana and 14 other nonprofits are opposing a federal proposal to expand drilling in the Gulf that's now open for public comment. The other problem is climate change. Deepwater fish that feed on the surface don't do well in warmer water. For Mahi, about 86 degrees is a tipping point. Those temperatures already regularly occur in the Gulf in August and September. Hotter water also leads to bigger and longer-lasting dead zones when there's less oxygen in the water. Warmer water also worsens the damage from oil, and there's no way to avoid it once a spill happens.
3: Uh, so a spill 20 years from now um, is, is going to be much more impactful than the one we saw in 2010. So I think the, the, the game is to try and avoid these spills uh, rather than respond to them.
13: But that's unlikely since there's no plan to stop drilling
3: in the Gulf. It is very easy to point fingers at the oil industry here and say, they're the bad guys, they caused this environmental disaster. Um, but uh, the oil spill happens because we rely on fossil fuel, climate change is happening because we burn fossil fuel.
13: And the only way to stop drilling is to stop using fossil fuel. I'm Jenny Stiletovich
0: in Miami. Well, earlier this year, a study from a progressive policy group found Leon County schools are the most segregated they've been since 1994. The findings of that study mirrored those from another one done a few years ago by Florida State University's Leroy Collins Institute. Now, that report found Leon County has one of the most highly segregated school districts in the state. In this episode of Not So Black and White, Lynn Hatter explores how Florida's majority white capital county ended up with a majority-minority school district.
14: And then we
9: have 79 to 80. Mm-hmm.
11: Oh, we're really starting to shift now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jasmine Smith is the principal of Oak Ridge Elementary School here in Tallahassee. I first met her earlier this year when I was on a panel talking to a group about local media. During the conversation, I casually mentioned that WFSU was working on a podcast about race and segregation. Shortly after, Smith approached me. She told me I had to come to Oak Ridge Elementary School. She had something she wanted to show me,
9: these yearbooks. It's like it just goes from this to something completely different
11: the pages and pictures of dozens of boxed-up yearbooks, they tell a story at Oak Ridge Elementary School. In the early years, the classroom photos feature young, smiling white faces. In the 1970s, there are a few more smiling, brown faces.
9: By the late 90s, most of the white faces are now brown. So my impression of Tallahassee is that it's a beautiful place to raise children, um, to have a family, but at the same time, they're very much, um, they're parts of Tallahassee that still feel very much segregated to some extent.
11: This is a story shared by several schools in Leon County, shared by thousands of schools in Florida, and tens of thousands across the United States. This
9: is a story of how
11: schools and communities, they're changing.
9: As I drive into work each day, I see signs on both ends of Shelfer Road that reference this neighborhood as the neighborhood of of the year in the early 2000s. In
11: 2017, the state considered the school a failing school, one that had earned F and D grades in the previous two years. Those grades meant Oak Ridge was in danger of having to close or be turned over to a private operator. It also meant a required changeover in administrators, which is how Smith got the job. When she arrived at Oak Ridge, she found a library with no books, crumbling shelves, and furniture that was original to the
9: school, which opened in 1969. I have friends that attended the school and came to visit me and looked and said, oh, it looks like it did when I was here. That's how Miss So-and-so's desk Looked. And we finished elementary school in the 80s. So you think about that um, part. And as a, a principal, I wanted to try to do something.
11: So Smith went to the school where she previously worked. That school is on the northeast side of Tallahassee. She went there because that school was getting new furniture. And she took back to Oak Ridge the things the north side school
9: didn't need or want anymore. Teachers here were very glad to get the, um, the furniture. Um, I have to say that was a decision that I, I um, made and then later spoke with our um, superintendent who was able to help us get some new furniture for our um, students. And as the new furniture arrived and um, was being placed in classrooms, I passed a student in the hallway and he looked at me and said, um, oh, Miss Dr. Smith, did another school give us some furniture again?
11: Smith realized that what she unintentionally communicated to her students in that moment was that they weren't worthy of having something new just for them, that it had to have come from somewhere
9: or someone else. And that's not ever the message that children should receive. And it was at that point that... um, I made a very firm decision that from, well, from that point forward, that when it came to anything um, that we were going to have in this school, that it would be something that would be up-to-date, modern, brand new, and that the message that children received is that you are worthy of having what everybody else in the world has. And I know you may think that's selfish me, but actually, it's only when I'm completely focused on me can I serve others selflessly. With the filling of my cup, love runs over endlessly, stretching my capacity to plant seeds. So you see that it's not greed that I've agreed to focus on myself.
11: Smith describes the situation she found at Oak Ridge as accidental or unintentional neglect. A school that struggled for so long that its teachers and administrators had been just trying to stay afloat. But things like library books, desks, and
9: textbooks fell by the wayside. I feel like I get teary-eyed thinking about just standing right there in the first grade hallway. Did another school give us something? I thought, this is not it.
6: I believe we have to realize that decisions have been made uh, that resulted in what what this podcast is all about.
11: That's former state senator Bill Montford. And he says struggling schools like Oak Ridge, they don't just happen in a vacuum.
6: And I would suggest to you that the majority of those decisions made were not made by the Leon County School Board. They were made by uh, other uh, government agencies or uh, or, or the, what drives the economy, growth. Every
9: one of us that we're not alone, it doesn't matter if you have two left feet or sing out a tune, just get what you need from every song. If you've never picked up a pencil to compose a poem, I encourage you to write at least one, taking the moments as they come, because you may not get another one. So just take
11: this is a story about how schools in Leon County, a predominantly white county that now has a majority black school district, got to be that way it's a story that goes beyond black and white yes we're talking about race but we're also talking about class and choice and change and most importantly we're talking about where we came from where we are and how much more there's left to do in order to achieve real equality and equity
1: on wsf's florida matters we looked at hillsborough county's transportation challenges and possible solutions Last month, yet another of the county's voter referendums to increase funding for road improvements and more failed to pass. This comes after a similar attempt in 2018 ended in the referendum being struck down as part of a lawsuit, leaving the millions of dollars collected in limbo. I spoke with WSF's reporter Sky LeBron about other recent attempts to secure transportation funding in two central Florida counties. Hillsborough is not the only county where leaders have tried to get more funding for transportation via a referendum, You also reported on an initiative in Hernando County where a half-cent sales tax aimed to fund transportation and other things. What would that revenue have been spent on, and what ultimately happened to that in the midterm election?
14: That one in Hernando didn't pass either. Um, And you're also thinking a smaller tax base, and then when you go to counties outside of the Tampa Bay region, you're thinking more conservative politics and and people that are more skeptical about these taxes their goal was to get 130 million dollars over 10 years and when i was speaking to officials out there they talked about the need to improve the roadways and prepare for more population growth mm. to prevent themselves from becoming like tampa where it could take you 30 40 minutes to get home from from work you can also look at orange county and their initiative failing as well so going forward i think government agencies and groups if they want to get these initiatives passed we're going to see them reevaluate how they're pitching these things to people. The, the population is clearly skeptical about new taxes, so they're not going to vote for something they feel is not going to uh, improve their lives and that they're not going to be able to see pretty immediately.
1: Now, aside from trying to raise revenue to pay for transportation improvements, counties in the Tampa Bay region have been making efforts in other ways to improve transportation. What else have you been covering in your reporting?
14: Yeah, things have been a little bit weird in Hillsborough, but with what we just discussed, and then on top of that controversy around the CEO uh, being investigated for not knowing one of its employees was working for another transit agency, (laughs)
1: just as an aside, that is... A crazy story to me.
14: Yeah, yeah, and it's still being followed right now. That Mm. that investigation is now going to take a couple months. But areas a bit outside of Tampa are still doing really cool things. Um, Manatee County launched a pilot program that pretty much eliminated its entire bus fare. There's still one route where you have to pay. Um, And when I spoke to an official there, he said the usage was already seeing an increase like people were using the fact that it was free now and there's a change in mindset from county officials saying that rather than treating it like something that we have to get paid for let's just treat it as a part of our infrastructure so people deserve to have that when they're living in the community in, in manatee county we're seeing the same thing happen in the first large metro in actually the dc area right now so i think it goes to show that just because these large initiatives talking about hundreds of millions of dollars transportation is still improving it may not be improving at the level that people want to see it but we are seeing changes in different areas throughout the state
0: up next on the florida roundup the Santa Belt library has reopened after getting hit hard by hurricane ian And experts warn of health risks from green-blue algae caused by Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We'll be right back. back to the Florida Roundup, I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville.
1: And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Every other Saturday, a line of cars stretches across the grounds of the Shady Grove Number no. 1 Primitive Baptist Church in East Leon County. They're there for the church's bi-weekly food distribution. Last month the line was 150 cars, and it grows by about 10 households with each distribution. As WFSU's Margie Menzel reports, the need isn't going away. It is amazing to see the need, uh, but
6: even more to be in a position to to meet that need, you know, to do something about it.
5: Lenoris McFadden is the senior pastor at Shady Grove. He's known as Pastor Mac. He majored in social science at Florida State University.
6: With some of our partners at one point during all this, we did a, a needs assessment and we put, you know, food, gas, utilities, help with rent, and shockingly, food, was the number one need.
5: That doesn't surprise Monique Ellsworth, the CEO of Second Harvest of the Big Bend. She says it's not uncommon for the food bank to get calls or meet people. Where we hear about mom skipping her meals so that her children don't have to,
12: grandparents skipping their meals so that their grandchildren don't have to. And so what we look to do as a food bank with uh, the partners that we have across our community is to stand in the gap so that families don't have to um, make food the item that they give up to make ends meet throughout the month.
5: Shady Grove is one of those partners. It's nearly 143 years old and has about 350 members. Its food program began as the Harvest Time Food Bank Ministry, in which church members would leave bags of canned food on people's doorsteps. Then in 2017, the church founded Victory House as its 501c3 arm and reached out to Second Harvest and FarmShare for help.
6: Through Second Harvest, we're also kind of one of the crisis centers so, we have to keep certain amounts of food stored here. So, if someone calls 211 and they're in this area and they need food, we're one of the places they come to. Uh, to receive that food, so especially during those storms and people were displaced.
5: Hurricanes are also a major concern at Feeding Florida, which coordinates the 12 food banks, like Second Harvest of the Big Bend, that covered the state's 67 counties. Executive Director Robin Safley says they're providing support to people displaced or damaged by Hurricanes Ian and Nicole. And then there's inflation, which not only affects the individual households served,
13: but it also affects our food bank's ability to purchase food as well as distribution because of gas prices. It's being pushed from both sides. We have more clients to deal with, um, but we also have a higher cost at dealing with them.
5: In fact, there are problems up and down the chain. Donor fatigue, loss of volunteers due to COVID-19, above all, poverty. Second Harvest of the Big Bend serves 11 counties, mostly rural ones, and will gain five more on January 1st. Pastor Mack says at the start of the pandemic, there were so many cars, roughly 500, that sheriff's deputies would have to direct the traffic backed up from Highway 90. Normally, Victory House has enough acreage that the line doesn't extend off its property. The good news is that much of the food is healthy and fresh. Safley says about 35 to 40% of feeding Florida's distribution is fresh produce or fruits. And Shady Grove has a garden ministry and grows vegetables for distribution. Pastor Mac says given the threat of diabetes, the church is very intentional about the food it provides. But Ellsworth says many people cut corners to their detriment.
12: And they do that in a couple of ways. They're gonna eat less food, Um, or they're going to begin purchasing food that costs less money and that usually means that they're going to forego more nutritional food and buy food that's um, highly processed. Um, Junk food unfortunately is far less expensive than nutritious food.
5: The providers are all working overtime and planning ahead. Feeding Florida and Second Harvest are doing nutrition education to help people get more out of the food they receive and Victory House will soon have an in-house pantry called Winner's Market.
6: You know, it restores some dignity, like I'm not in this food drive line, like I'm able to come into this little small grocery store type of a place, pick my own food out, get what I want, what I don't want, but it, it, it restores some dignity.
5: But the food banks and their partners train volunteers to respect the dignity of people who need food.
12: That's just a moment in this family's life, that it's not defining who they are. It's not highlighting character defects. This is just a tough moment for them. And our responsibility is to be there and stand in that space with them and make sure that they aren't having to eat less or not eat to survive a really difficult time.
5: All the food distributions need volunteers, support, and money. For WFSU News, I'm Margie Menzel. Well, after major storms
0: Ian and Nicole this fall, scientists are monitoring for toxic blue-green algae blooms in Florida's waterways, including the St. John's River. Climate change is creating ideal conditions for these blooms, and as ADAPT's Brendan Rivers reports, doctors don't fully understand their effect on our health.
15: Shannon Valentine Sanders has been dealing with mysterious symptoms since last year. She vaguely remembers one day sending an emergency text to her family from the parking lot of a KFC in southwest Florida.
0: I was having seizures and um, I didn't know where I was, was I was having a hard time breathing. I thought I was drugged or poisoned.
15: Doctors say she's sick because she was exposed to toxins from blue-green algae that was floating around the sailboat she lived on last summer. She had struggled to keep the ropes and hull clean and she swam in the algae as she scrubbed. Hurricanes that hit Florida this year pushed millions of gallons of sewage and fertilizer into waterways, including the St. Johns River, potentially feeding new algae blooms that could still turn toxic even months later.
12: So anything that's an unusual bluish-green scum is something that can alert you to an outbreak or a fish kill.
15: St. Johns River keeper Lisa Reinemann warns toxic algae can be invisible, and climate change is creating ideal conditions for it to thrive.
12: We've seen several significant outbreaks over the last couple of years further south of here or upriver. Um, there's been some in the smaller creeks. So really every year is different. Um, I will say, though, as war- if the waters get warmer, you know, conditions are more ripe for these type of outbreaks.
15: Sixteen months after she started getting sick, Valentine Sanders is still a prisoner to her symptoms.
0: I just was never right after that. Like, I just felt off dizzy. I couldn't write like normal writing concentrating. I had a hard time finding words and vocalizing.
15: Florida Atlantic University nursing professor Shirley Gordon says we already know a lot about the short-term symptoms of exposure.
0: But we
7: don't have strong data to inform us about any potential long-term effects as a result of being um, exposed over time to the um, harmful algal blooms.
15: Gordon is leading new research that'll track the health and exposure of people who live or vacation on Florida's coasts and lakes. Despite lack of data on long-term impacts, research led by Sarab Chatterjee at the University of California at Irvine shows that threats can grow over time, with children and obese people being more at risk of fatal liver and kidney diseases, especially if they're repeatedly exposed. Healthy people face growing risks as well. The more they're exposed— the more likely their infections will become resistant to antibiotic medicines. Florida's health department uses its website to post updates on harmful blooms, and users can sign up for email updates. But when blooms strike, experts worry that messaging to the public isn't always clear. I'm Brendan Rivers in Jacksonville.
1: On December 1st, the Sanibel Public Library reopened for the first time since Hurricane Ian walloped the island. WGCU's Carrie Barber paid a visit to this vital community resource.
7: When the Sanibel Public Library reopened, John Rao was the first patron through the doors. The staff presented him with a mug to welcome him back. He was anxious to get to one of the calm, air-conditioned workrooms. There he could use the phone and the Internet to get back to his job as the CFO of the Children's Advocacy Center for Southwest Florida. He's been dealing with a damaged home like virtually everyone on the island, but he says once he got immersed in a work call, he forgot all about the hurricane damage, if only for a moment.
5: But the minute I got into my call and I got just completely distracted, it was as if nothing, it was as if the storm never happened. You know, I was
11: looking up, I was kind of looking at the time. I was like, oh, I'll just go get lunch. Where do I want to go? I'll go to Jerry's. Or That's when it came back to me. But I literally had fooled myself. And that, I think, is the magic, at least for me, of the library, because without this space, I don't think I would have felt that.
7: In addition to books and other media, the library offers essential services like Wi-Fi, copying, faxing, and meeting with people, all in a clean and air-conditioned space. And not only does it offer internet in-house, the library lends out Wi-Fi hotspots. Reference and archives librarian Beth Gerald explains.
5: Absolutely. We have Wi-Fi hotspots that people can check out for two-week periods. Most of the island does not have internet, or sometimes they, they don't even have cell service right now. So it's really important for people to have a way to access the internet without having to go all the way over to Fort Myers. This way, with the hotspot, they can take it home, and as long as they have cell service in their home, they can use the internet.
7: Buildings all along the route to the library are in ruins. Outside nearby bookshop Jeans, there sits a small, heartbreaking mountain of soggy, ruined books. So it's hard to believe that the library's collection survived the storm virtually unharmed. But because it was on the second floor of the building, it did survive. Head of Collection Development Dwayne Schaefer says more. Good news is that the entire collection, the print media, everything, magazines, movies, uh, it's all up here on the second floor. And this library was built in 1994, and it is very solid. It's almost like a castle. But a castle that Sanibel residents really frequent. Reference and archives librarian Beth Jarrell again.
5: You know, we actually have one of the highest percentage of cardholders across the entire state. So the library has always been a real community center for people, and I think now more than ever, people just want to come in and have a place to just feel normal again.
7: Sanibel resident Liz Podolsky, who's also a realtor on the island, sums it up when she explains why she wanted to come back for opening day. Library's always been uh, just an integral part of our life here. For more information, go to sanlib.org. That's S-A-N-L-I-B dot org. In Sanibel, I'm Carrie Barber.
0: And that's our show. Thanks for listening. The Florida Roundup is produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tui are producers, WLRN's Vice President of Radio, and our Technical Director is Peter Meritz.
1: Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Markles, and Brady Coram. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Libos at AaronLibos.com. I'm Matthew Petty.
0: And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful weekend.